Last week we looked at a text that is often misinterpreted and leads people to think that Jesus was happy about a poor widow giving up her last two pennies. And this week we look at yet another often misinterpreted text, one that leads people to think Jesus was a false prophet. And so if you're new with us, we've been going verse by verse through Mark's gospel. And today we come to Mark chapter 13, the very famous Olivet Discourse. We're going to look at verses 1 through 37. 1 through 37. I know that's a lot of verses, but we've got to look at it in context. We've got to look at the whole thing in order to understand what Jesus is talking about. So this is Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 37. If you don't have your Bibles with you, the verses will be on the screen. Verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation a kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man 
coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is God's word. So, is Jesus a false prophet? Was he wrong about the timing of his second coming? Not at all. Not at all. As they say, context is king, right? Context is king. And so let's dive into the context, shall we? Number one in your outline is out with the old. Out with the old. If you grew up in a late 20th century American evangelical church like I did, you know, or at least you think you know, what these verses are about. Jesus' second coming at the end of the world. But is that really what Jesus is referring to here? I don't think it is. I don't think it has anything to do with Jesus' second coming. And I'll tell you why. <clears throat> Jesus' favorite name for himself was the Son of Man. The Son of Man. He used it all the time. And that name comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And when Jesus talks here about, quote, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with glory and power, he is referencing Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And in Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision of four beasts coming up out of the sea. Each beast represents a world empire. And the fact they are coming up out of the sea tells us that they are associated with evil, with wickedness. It's at that point that Daniel sees a messianic figure appear. And he says this, quote, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Like a son of man. Now, here is the critical thing to realize. It's critical to understand this. In Daniel's vision, the Son of Man is not coming from heaven to earth. The Son of Man is coming from earth to heaven. You see, Daniel is having this vision from heaven, from heaven's throne. 
and he sees one like a son of man coming up from the earth in the clouds to heaven's throne. In other words, Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is describing an ascent to heaven, not a descent from heaven. In an ancient Jewish context, if you said the phrase, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds, everyone would know what you were talking about. They'd know what you're talking about. Not a declaration of someone coming from heaven to earth, but rather a declaration that God's Messiah has ascended the throne of heaven. But because of Hollywood and because of uh, a very popular book series nowadays, you know what I'm talking about? Left behind, right? If you were to say the phrase, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds, what would you think of? You would think of a descent, right? The Son of Man coming from heaven to earth. But in the first century, that's not at all how they would interpret that. If you said that phrase in the first century, they would know what you're talking about. You're talking about Daniel 7, and you're talking about God's Messiah going from earth to heaven, not from heaven to earth. Now let me point out something else. When Jesus is put on trial before the Sanhedrin, he is accused by the Sanhedrin of saying that the temple would be destroyed, right? And when the high priest asks him if he is the Messiah, what does Jesus say? He says this. He says, yes, I am. And you are going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's how Jesus responds. Now, was Jesus telling the Sanhedrin that they're going to see his second coming? No. Well, what is he referring to then? What will they see in regards to him coming on the clouds of heaven? They will see the total and complete destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That is what they will witness. Translation. Translation. Jesus tells the Sanhedrin, yes, I am the Messiah. And like the beasts of Daniel 7, you are wicked. You are the enemy of God and God's people. And you will be destroyed. And when you see Rome's army marching on your temple, know that I am seated at the right hand of God leading the charge. No, it is I that brings about your destruction. And you wonder why the Sanhedrin immediately moved to crucify him. <laughs> yeah. So, in context, Jesus is here giving a long answer to a simple question. What is that question? Let's look at verses 1 through 4. What's the question he's answering? Verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, 
When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? So, the temple that King Herod built, now y'all know the Jews didn't build this temple, right? King Herod built this grand temple, and the, and the temple that he built for the Jews in Jerusalem was the largest and most beautiful building on the entire planet in the first century. In fact, it was so massive, really in the first century, Jerusalem didn't have a temple. Jerusalem was a temple. That was, that's how large the temple was. The city was really the temple. <laughs> and people lived a little bit, you know, kind of on the outskirts. But the temple was massive and it was gorgeous. It was a literal wonder of the world in the first century. And Jesus told his disciples, I'm tearing the whole thing down. The whole thing is coming down. You can imagine the shock <laughs> on the disciples' faces. You're going to do what now? <laughs> You're tearing this down? How could you do that? How could you do that? They're shocked, stunned. And so their natural question was simply this. Uh... When is that going to happen? And what will be the sign that it's about to happen? That's their question. You would ask the exact same thing. When is that going to take place? So they're not asking about the end of the world. It's not their question, is it? They're asking about the end of the temple and the signs of its impending doom. That is what they're asking and Jesus gives them a very detailed answer. He tells them what to watch out for, especially the abomination that causes desolation, referenced in verse 14 here. Now, what is that abomination? Jesus is again referencing Daniel. This time it's Daniel 11, verse 31. Daniel 11, verse 31, which speaks of an abomination of pagan armies invading Jerusalem. Okay? So the abomination is the Roman emperor and his legion marching on Jerusalem. That is the abomination. And Jesus says, when you see that happening, run. Run to the mountains. If you do not, you will not survive. Now, let me ask you this. If this were the end of the world, what would be the point in running to the mountains? That's kind of goofy. <laughs> if it's the end of all things, why bother run <laughs> running to the mountains, right? It's because it's not the end of all things. It's the end of the temple. It's the end of the temple. Therefore, when this passage is understood in its proper context, what we see is this. Jesus is saying that when the disciples see the Roman Empire invading Jerusalem, they should, number one, run. Okay? <laughs> run. Number one. 
And number two, they should know that it is Jesus' own judgment upon Jerusalem because it has become his enemy. Jesus is leading the charge. And now why has Israel become his enemy? A, by abusing the poor. As we saw last week, they become his enemy. And B, by rejecting him as Messiah. Okay? They abuse the poor, as we saw last week. And they've rejected him as Messiah. They are his enemy. And he's taking them all down. Now, I know an objection you have at this point. You might have. What about all the sun being darkened and stars falling from the sky talk in verses 24 and 25? Well, this is apocalyptic language, okay, that the Bible often uses. The Bible often talks like this, especially the Old Testament prophets, okay? Now, notice the quotation marks around these verses in Mark 13. Was it 24 and 25? There's quotation marks around those, right? Hopefully you see that. So Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah. He's quoting an Old Testament prophet. This comes from Isaiah chapter 13. And the prophet Isaiah in chapter 13 was using apocalyptic imagery to prophesy the world-changing destruction of the Babylonian Empire. Okay? The Babylonian Empire and Isaiah was correct. He was correct. Babylon, the most powerful empire in the world at that point, fell in 539 B.C. So Isaiah was not prophesying about the end of the world with all the stars falling and all that weird stuff, okay? That's apocalyptic language, imagery. Isaiah was not prophesying about the end of the world, and neither is Jesus. Neither is Jesus. Jesus is using Isaiah's apocalyptic language to describe the world-changing nature of what's about to happen to the temple. Okay? What's about to happen to the temple? Now, what about the verse that says, the gospel must be preached to all nations? Verse 10. I know that's another pushback you might have. Well, what about that? The gospel hasn't gone to all nations. Actually, it did. It did. Amazingly, by the end of the first century, the gospel had been preached to every known nation at that time. The gospel spread incredibly quickly at the beginning. So indeed, it was. The gospel, by the time the temple is destroyed, the gospel had already gone to all the nations. That has already happened. At least the known nations of the ancient world. Now, I know another objection you want to bring up at this point. What are we to make of verse 27? And the Son of Man, quote, sending his angels to gather his elect from the four winds. How do we explain that verse? Well, the Greek word angelos, what we translate as angel, can also be translated messengers. Messengers. In the ancient Near East, the word was often used in terms of a royal messenger carrying out the king's message. They were called angeloses. They were the king's messengers. Therefore, 
Does Jesus have to mean heavenly beings here? Or could he not have been talking about the disciples themselves? Could he not have been referencing the disciples who would be King Jesus' messengers to the nations, carrying his gospel message and gathering his elect? Well, given the fact that this is precisely what happened after the destruction of the temple, it seems more than reasonable to interpret these verses in that way. So, when Jesus told his disciples in verse 30 that this generation will not pass away until all, all these things have happened, that's exactly what Jesus meant. It's exactly what he meant. Now, if you want to take this passage as talking about the second coming, about the end of the world, you have to do some spectacular interpretive gymnastics with verse 30. (laughs) Look, I've heard a bunch of people try to explain verse 30. How do you explain this verse that Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened? How do you explain it? It's pretty wild (laughs) how some preachers and scholars try to explain it. It is really wild. Uh, You've got to do, like I said, some really amazing interpretive gymnastics here to try to make this make any sense with the second coming or the end of the world. But hey, instead of doing that, why don't we just do this? Why don't we just take Jesus' words at face value? think that would make a little bit more sense. When he said, this generation will not pass away until all these things happened, that's what he meant. (laughs) Okay? Jesus is not a false prophet. Everything happened exactly as he said it would. Exactly. You see, in 70 AD, Rome invaded Jerusalem And completely destroyed the temple, not leaving one brick on top of another. Everything happened exactly as he said it would. Okay, now I know you're stressed out. You're stressed out. First of all, you've never heard this preached this way, probably. So you're stressed out because of that. And second of all, you're probably stressed out because you're thinking, "Um, okay, so... Is there going to be a second coming or not? (laughs) Yes. Yes, there is. (laughs) Jesus is coming back, folks, okay? He's coming back. It's just that this passage ain't about that, okay? It ain't about that. The rumors and rumors of wars and all that, hey, that was talking about the war of Rome against, against the Jews, okay? Oh, wars and rumors of wars. Uh, Don't get caught up in all that mess, okay? That's already happened. The wars and rumors of wars was about Rome's war against Israel, (laughs) okay? It's not about the war in Ukraine. You got it? The wars and rumors of wars, all that has already happened. It happened a long time ago. So don't get stressed out about wars and rumors of wars and all that kind of stuff. This has already happened, folks. There will be a second coming, (laughs) okay? It's just that this passage is not talking about that. 
Okay, well, if this passage isn't talking about that, then what does this passage have to do with us today? Seems kind of irrelevant to us, right? These are just for the first century Jews, you know. They need to run to the mountains and all that stuff when the war comes. What does this have to do with us today? Well, I'm glad you asked. This text has everything to do with us today. It has everything to do with us. You see, Jesus isn't just tearing down the old temple. He's replacing it with a new one. A much, much better one. Which leads us to point number two in your outline. In with the new. We've seen out with the old and now we see in with the new. Now, almost every religion in the history of the world has had something like a temple. Just about all of them had something like a temple. A place where you go to meet with your deity, to pray, to offer money and sacrifices. But Jesus says something remarkable in John chapter 1, sorry, John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. John 2, verses 18 through 21. Here's what those verses say, verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, to Jesus. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? Verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body, his body. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that in every other temple, you bring the sacrifices to the priest. In every other temple, you bridge the gap between you and God. In every other temple, you pay the price. But Jesus says, with me and my new temple, I am the temple. I am the priest. I am the altar. I am the sacrifice. I am the lamb who is slain. Jesus says, I pay the price in the new temple. I bridge the gap between you and God. And how would Jesus do that? We will see him do it in the very next chapter in Mark's gospel. The very next chapter, we'll see him do it. We will see him build a bridge across the infinite gap between us and our creator. A gap caused by our rebellion and our sin against him. And that bridge that Jesus will build will be in the shape of a Roman cross. You see, in Jesus' religion, you don't work your way to God. God works his way to you. In Jesus' religion, you don't pay for your sins. Jesus pays 
for your sins. In Jesus' religion, the temple is not a place. It's a person. It's him. (laughs) It's him. And he is the temple that makes all other temples obsolete. He is the temple to end all temples. He is the last and final temple for all time. And you can go to him at any time and at any place. You don't need stained glass in a steeple. You can go to him in spirit and in truth. At any time and at any place. There are some of you here today. You've had spurts of religious interest over the years. Every now and then, you know, you've tried to turn over a new leaf, go to church, and be a good person. But you would say that it just never fully worked for you. And you're here to give it another shot. Just give it another shot and see what happens. In the past, you know, you... You would say you just haven't really been able to feel the love of God. You just never could quite get assurance and acceptance from God. And do you know why? Do you know why? It's because you've been going to the wrong temple. You've been going to the wrong temple. You came to church thinking it was a temple. A temple like all other religious temples out there. You came to a place in which you brought the sacrifices. You were trying to be a good person. You were trying to turn over a new leaf. You were trying to follow the rules. You were putting the money in the offering plate. You were doing all the things. And that's why you missed it. That's why it didn't work for you. (laughs) You thought church was a temple. But it's not. The crucified and resurrected Christ is the temple. He is the temple now. And he does all the work. He pays all the prices. He follows all the rules. He does all the righteous deeds. He sets the table and he makes all the food. The only thing left for you to do is eat. (laughs) Eat and have your fill. To taste and see that he is good. That's it. He's done it all. And so won't you do that today? Won't you do that? This is not a temple. This is not a temple that we're sitting in. It's not. This is a place where sinners gather to worship the temple. You see? We worship the temple here. 
This is not a temple. We worship the one true and the last temple here. We come together as broken sinners, as individuals living our individual lives, and we come here all together, unified in Jesus' name. And we sit at his table that he prepared for us by his wondrous grace. And we eat and we have our fill. That's what we do here. As one of my favorite pastors likes to say when he closes a sermon, so let us eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we live forever. Jesus himself has made it so.